This is the No Stroke Podcast with your co-hosts, David Dancero and Michael Garrow, helping you to support and thrive in life after stroke. Their podcast is designed for educational and community support purposes only and should not replace medical treatment and guidance of your own health professional team. Welcome, everyone, to episode 37 of the No Stroke Podcast. My name is David Dansborough, and I'm here with my co-host, Michael Garrow. Good evening, Mike. How are you? I'm well, David. As always, it's a, it's a special week here on the No Stroke Podcast and for many of our listeners. As you know, we're, we're going to be releasing this right, right before World Stroke Day, which is coming up on uh, Saturday, October 29th. So if you're listening to it, you know, on Friday, Saturday, or over the weekend, or really at any time, happy World Stroke Day. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in the flavor of the week, um, you'll notice that I'm branding for us. No I stroke As always, swag. I've been um, lacking. It's okay. We'll give you time. Give you time to get it pressed out. Um, I spent my lunch hour sharing um, with the Yukon Health uh stroke support group and they've done great things um, and they continue to bring in um, great uh, community around especially around this week because last this is uh, uh, when when this is actually run they will have already completed their symposium unfortunately but we did advertise that the week prior uh, but um, I am I've joined them for the second time. Time we talked about fall prevention. Um, last time we talked about goal setting. I was there about a year ago. Um, so, and Brooke um, Nadell is also uh, a guest of the podcast. Uh, not going to put you on the spot what episode, but she's the stroke, stroke nurse navigator and the coordinator there and does great things. So I'm always uh, happy to to help and take part there. So hopefully we gained a few listeners too. I did. Uh, I did encourage folks to. <laughs> To join in and if you're listening thanks for joining and uh, i really enjoyed meeting everyone absolutely nice well yeah i think caroline or again another friend of the podcast she was probably she was down there this week um but yeah yukon health center in in uh, hartford connecticut really doing amazing work um so shout out to brooke and I believe jennifer there who, who lead their their stroke program i'm happy to hear you know you're able to go and and preach the good word fall prevention hot topic for sure, for sure. Fall prevention. Yeah. Mm. As we turn to fall, this is when one of the two times that fall rates increase. So yeah. A lot of a um, lot of lot of good discussion today. Nice, nice. And I've been um unfortunately I wasn't able to book a trip out to uh Singapore, but the world the 14th annual world uh stroke co- congress is actually happening out in Singapore this week. So I've been able to kind of stay in the loop on Twitter and I encourage you all like, you know, if you do have Twitter or Facebook accounts, search for a world stroke organization or maybe even go to their website. Um, they'll be posting, you know, some updates that are happening you know, at that event, but, you know, again, amazing, you know, research coming out of there and, you know, hopefully, you know, as we allude to today, you know, the, the real focus on digital and, and innovation coming into stroke. So, um, let's jump into it again. This was a great, uh, for us really like it, 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 we couldn't think of a better episode to be coming out for world stroke day. Um, just the, I think this episode is really going to drive a level of optimism into everyone's ears. Um, you know, obviously stroke is challenging and stroke is, you know, one of the most complex conditions to deal with. Um, uh, but you know, it, 
it's really amazing to hear and, and listen to you know, our guest today and the countless experts that are so, so smart that are kind of passionate and driving the uh, innovation forward here. So David, why don't you uh, kind of tee up Shirley Ryan Ability Lab? Let's talk a little about that and Absolutely. then I'll jump into the guests. Yeah. Yeah. So um, for those who are not familiar with the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, um, it was it's in Chicago and it was formerly known as the Rehab Institute of Chicago. Um, they provide world-class care to patients from around the globe, from conditions ranging from stroke, as we're going to talk to our guests about today, uh, to acute brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, uh, chronic pain, and sports injuries. Um, injuries, excuse me. Um, they, um, and you can go right to their website um, to learn this as well, but they've been uh, number one in, re in, in rehabilitation rehabilitation hospitals in the U.S. by U.S. News and World Report every year since 1991, Mike. So that's like 32 years in the running. Um, and it just goes to the quality, the team. And you're going to hear from our guests who I'm going to um, turn over the mic so you can tell our guests about. I'll just say that if I could move to Chicago, I'd, I'd, I'd love to be working there. <laughs> so yeah, why don't you... It's, uh... you know, yeah, it's a group that, in a, you know, hospital system that, you know, has really been able to be at the forefront of stroke innovation. Um, and, you know, David, and I, you know, we're, we're big geeks around technology and the, the potential that we see um, for technology to make an impact here in stroke care. So we brought in the expert. Um, we are going to be joined by Arun Jaraman, um, and he is executive director of technology at the Innovation Hub at Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. Uh, you know, funny enough, this is actually our only or first ever uh, PT to join mm -hmm. the pod outside of our our famous David Dancer. <laughs> um, but yeah, he you know he has extensive knowledge uh, within sensors, exo exoskeletons, robotics, um, and other. Uh, emerging rehab technologies. So it, again, a fascinating discussion. I think there's nothing more left to do than just open up the, the room here to Arun and get into this episode. So again, with that, you know, please do like, share, subscribe. It, it certainly does help help us, you know, as we grow our audience and, and you know, loyal listeners here. And again, happy World Stroke Day. Hmm. And yeah. Let's get some of that no stroke swag going. Get some no stroke it'll, swag. It'll, and be, get... <laughs> it'll be live soon on the website. Don't worry. And I'll just add, get ready to take notes. And uh, you're really going to learn a lot in this episode. So enjoy. All right. Welcome to the No Stroke Podcast, Arun. So nice to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I looked at your previous speakers. I'm super excited. Well, you were um, you were one that's been on the list here for a long time. I think you know your background, and obviously David and I's love for for you know rehab tech and the role of what what you're able to bring to patients at Shirley Ryan is is super interesting. So, you know, we're, we're excited to dive into that. But before that, you know, for for the our audience, you know, can you give a bit of a background, kind of what what got you to your role today with Shirley Ryan? Oh yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm clinically trained as a physical therapist. That's my my original job. Uh, then I went on to the to get a PhD in uh, rehabilitation science and neuromuscular physiology at the University of Florida. Uh, then I 
moved to Chicago to work at the former Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, which is now called the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab to do a, a postdoctoral fellowship in uh, rehabilitation technologies and neurophysiology. And I fell in love with the place and I was hoping they would give me a job. Uh, and sometimes luck strikes you well and uh, I turned out to take on a job for a, for a unique situation where um, the place I, uh, I'm part of is called the Center for Bionic Medicine. And uh, the Center for Bionic Medicine was started by one Dr. Todd Kaiken during the Iraq and Afghanistan war where a lot of the Department of Defense funding was uh, towards uh, amputees uh, because there was a lot of uh, blast injuries and polytrauma and a lot of amputation. But, and so at that time, the industry or was peaking with technologies driven towards people with uh, amputations, limb amputations. But they were struggling with identifying whose company, which product was the best one and why, because you just can't wait for clinical trials to happen over decades because when you're in an active situation. So they wanted to uh, start a center which was um, neutral to any industry partner. Um, and that's how the uh, Max Nader Center for Rehabilitation Technologies and Outcomes Research was started, predominantly to work on uh, prosthetics and orthotics and rehabilitation robotics. And over time, this work, uh, which was specific to only that, has evolved into my current job where I lead the technology and innovation hub at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. So Aaron, uh, first of all, thank you that for that. Uh, for your for your backdrop there and and very interesting um, experience that led you there. I just have to say too, I'm I'm very proud that you're at. This is a first for us. You're our first PT on the show, so we've oh. had we've had three OTs. We've talked a lot about rehab medicine, um, and I I know we met early before we started recording. I'm a PT as well, so welcome. And thank you uh, for joining us tonight. And I wanted to really dive into, you know, what sets Shirley Ryan Lab apart from other rehab hospitals. It's we we talked at the beginning about the accolades and 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 you know how um, the I think for so many years you've been number one in the rehab and and for the the go to place world renowned. Um, can you talk to, you know, how you bring doctors, rehab professionals, researchers all together in one place there and what makes it so special? Yeah, I mean, the one uniqueness about the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab uh, is that research and everyday clinical care is merged. Uh, all patients or individuals who are admitted into the hospital are enrolled automatically in research and they have to opt out. So, so right of refusal is there, which means you can refuse to be part of research instead of right to ask to enroll yourself in research or defaulted into research. Um, one of the reasons also to do that is historically academic uh, and clinical research are independent with practice. Uh, buildings are independent uh, or even maybe on a different floor and sometimes, but they rarely interact. So it's kind of a, people live in their own bubbles. Um, and that's why it takes, they say, about 15 years from bench research uh, 
I mean, even quasi-bench in terms of clinical research, which is started in an academic lab to become practice. And nowadays, as you say, when we switch our iPhones every year, uh, people have access to the internet and they look up technologies very fast and therapeutics very fast and nobody wants to wait 15 years. By then, 20 new things are come and they want access to that. But then again, the science hasn't developed fast enough to use that new thing. So we're kind of in this cycle of uh, catching up. Well, in our hospital, it's a, it's a priority that our patients get access to cutting edge research immediately, which is why we've designed and built it where everyday researchers have to interact with patients and clinicians, whether they like it or not, which means you don't have to go to the drawing board every few five years to 10 years, but you can actually find out pretty fast what's needed. That's cool. And, and another thing that I'd, I'd just like you to touch on just as we start to kind of set the scene and again, what sets you guys apart really is, can you, can you describe the different labs that are kind of themed in, right? I see yeah. you know, there's the, you know, legs and walking lab. Yeah, yeah, can yeah. you talk through kind of that Absolutely. approach? Absolutely. So there are multiple labs. I mean, lab is just a reason we name it that way. You could call it a center, but to indicate to the everyday public that were involved in research is it's it's kind of a quasi marketing strategy where you call it a lab but it's a clinical and research interactive space so we have for example legs and walking which means most of the researchers there focus on legs and walking and the clinical care is focused on the lower limb that doesn't mean they cannot do upper limb work there is going to be equipment to work on balance and upper limb and things like that but predominantly then we have arms and hands again which focuses predominantly on improving your arms and hands then their brain and uh, cognitive function, which is again, that specific work is to work on brain function, a speech language pathology, uh, swallowing disorders, things like that. Then we have musculoskeletal, which is now focusing more on musculoskeletal injuries. Then we have the Center for Bionic Medicine, which focuses on technology. So, and then we have biologics, which is again, your stem cell, gene therapy, pharma trials, muscle tissue samples, blood work research, is handled. So that way, everybody's targeting their work on certain systems. So we put the best names in the field, focusing on legs together, arms together, technologies together. So they're all bouncing out with the clinicians who specialize in those two, the PTs and the legs and walking, the OTs and the arms and hands. So they're all kind of bouncing with each other, trying to get the best outcomes possible. And you have the best job in the world because you, you get to work with all those different labs, right? So let's yeah. <laughs> so and it's a, it's a brilliant concept, right? Because you're you're bringing together you have you know those different specialties from a clinical background, but then let's let's dive more into your role, right? Because you know, as the the director of technology, you know, you're you're really enhancing the capabilities and the trials happening in each of these different units. Yeah. Right? So the Technology Innovation Hub was started again, similar to the Max Nader Center, right? But that was only focused on originally on amputees, prosthetics and orthotics. The Technology Innovation Hub is to cover the whole spectrum, uh, neuromodulation, pharma trials, uh, drug trials, um, any new technology, uh, sensors, uh, home monitoring, computer vision, tele telemedicine. So the whole gambit of care models across the spectrum of diseases and the spectrum of technologies. As I said, we are kind of the, the gatekeeper to for industries from small startups to large companies 
want to work in the rehabilitation field to engage with them and then to find the right partners within the hospital to work with them and expedite these technologies to everyday clinical practice or commercialization. So this can range from a design development, which means, hey, I had this product idea in my garage. Is this worth developing? So that's a design development question. Then somebody has a minimum viable device and they want to run basic pilot trials to randomized control clinical trials at a phase one, phase two, phase three level to getting FDA trials, their CE mark trials. Then you get what is known as CMS trials, which means you're trying to get a new CPT code or a HIGSPIX code uh, to get a new product reimbursement code. Um, so this can range the whole spectrum uh, of trials. So it could be a, a one subject, single visit to hundreds and hundreds of participants doing multiple trials it comes across. So the patient population goes from rehabilitation in babies born at high risk births in the neonatal ICU to frail elderly living in the community. We look at stroke, spinal cord injury, Parkinson's, MS, uh, musculoskeletal injuries, cancer rehab, and that's the whole spectrum. But as you probably realize, stroke is the largest population uh, we see uh, because of the situation in the country and the world. Um, that's some. That's the largest population we deal with. So, in your role, it, it said on your site that you have over two hundred clinical trials that are kind of going, coming and going at any one time. So, you're sort of the gatekeeper. How do you how do you direct them to each lab, and and how long? Maybe could you point to an example of something that's exciting you now that you're working on specific to stroke um, that highlights you know some of the success you've had there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so end of the day, the concept is very simple. What is going to improve everyday life or recovery of our patients? How can we get them to pre-morbid levels of quality of life? That's a priority. So that's one target goal. The second after that is, okay, are we going to achieve this, which means are we reducing the inpatient stay for a person? Or are we getting them at the same discharge time point, but the outcomes are better. Let's say instead of walking, now I'm jogging. So that's a better outcome, right? So are we getting at that? So those are the things. Um, and the third is sometimes a strategic long-term vision question. If these two are not targeted, I'm like, hey, this is a great group. Maybe this project's not going to give us that, but the Shelly Ryan Ability Lab is, is a global influencer. So we want to make sure, hey, this is a long-term vision is going to impact us and our patients every day. So we might take it on based on that. So as far as projects actively, I don't I mean, it's not 200 at a time, over 200 over time. Actively, I would say about 30 different trials. Um, and so as a jack of all trades, my skill set is good enough that I can gauge what is cutting edge, which means you have to be updated with the literature, what is clinical practice. So my team is a mixed team. We're about 50 people and the Center for Bionic Medicine is about 80 people. So in these 50 people, we have uh, physical therapists, occupational therapists, prosthetists, orthotists, uh, psychologists. Um, we have graduate students in biomedical engineering, physical therapy, occupational therapy, MD, PhD program, PT, PhD program, just biomedical engineering, PhD program, neuroscience PhD program uh, from Northwestern, University of Chicago and UIC sometimes. Uh, and then we have a data scientists, machine learning folks, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, uh, physicians. So you have a very mixed 
population of technologists and clinicians. So every project is kind of shaken by our team first to say, hey, this is worth our time. Should we take it up to somebody else? So a lot of times clinical trials need physicians and then they need a team to run it, right? So a lot of physicians are very busy. They have to take care of their practice. So we do the background, I call it, we ghost on the, the project. Uh, they will work on the priority parts, but the rest of the projects run by us. So those are like pharma trials, uh, like drug trials and things like that. Uh, there are experts in the field, like Dr. Lara Cherney is a specialist in speech and language. So if there is something related to that, it goes to her. Dr. Harvey is somebody who likes inpatient trials, so it'll go to him. Sometimes we run the projects. So the projects in stroke, right? You can split them into three ways in a very simple manner. One is called therapeutic projects, which means you're, you're providing a therapeutic output, which means you're gonna have a, a participant doing something, then you have the intervention, and then you're gonna test how is the participant outside of the intervention. Not, so that's a therapeutic project. Then you have something known as personal mobility project, which means somebody with a severe stroke where they don't have an upper limb function, even minimally no volitional control or lower limb function. So that is just to move them to point A to point B. Could be a powered wheelchair, it could be a variable robot, but that's personal mobility or personal function. That means a fork, which can, it's more rice, can help them eat or something which can move the, the curtains. These are personal mobility projects. And the last is performance augmentation. Okay, you got a mild stroke, but you really wanna go to the grocery store, but you're gonna get fatigued halfway there. We'll give you a performance augmentation, which means it's gonna take you to the grocery store. It's, it's not like you completely can't walk. It's not like you can fully walk. It's in between, so you're augmenting. So one, you can put them in a therapeutic intervention and then say, now you're better, or you can give them a performance augmentation device and say, now you gotta keep doing. Um, as any, rehabilitation is not like other kind of medicine with just cut and dry. It's not like you're cured and you're gone. It's a lifelong process, right? So again, we can target these projects at the inpatient level, which means right after your stroke, at the outpatient level, which means you're still acute stage and moving towards the chronicity, but you're still in an outpatient setting. We have something called day rehab, which means if you're a little more impaired, you can get up to five hours of therapy after your inpatient care. And the finally is the home and community. So projects can be targeted at an inpatient level, outpatient level, or home and community level. Some can go across the continuum of care. It can go from inpatient all the way to home. And then you have complementary interventions, which combines two things together, uh, because I think that's the future. I don't think in rehabilitation in the past, at least I've been in the field about 20, 30 years, there is one magic pill, which is gonna cure everything. It's a combination of things and it's, it's a lifelong process. You just, I mean, the American Heart Association recommends healthy adults need 20, 30 minutes of exercise seven days a week. Imagine after a stroke, you've taken a bunch of steps back, you need to be doing therapy and personal exercise. So exercise and fitness separate therapy is different. So it's, imagine how long this has to go on. The process is a long-term process. So uh, I can talk about some projects. Um, sorry, I think I went on a little tangent about explaining this. But that was, no, that was... There's so many different avenues. I, I'd love to go down there with you. Um, and I, I really like it. We'll, we'll touch on the projects. So I definitely wanted to 
listen and, and you know hear about a couple but just to kind of digest what what you explained there right the the approach that you're taking to you know how these different trials are are set up and operated you know there's the ability to kind of have one of my real questions was as inpatient right you're getting mm-hmm. access to the trials right but i love to hear kind of how you're also looking at that outpatient level as well as the home and community because you know as we'll get to later you know that that's ultimately where rehab is going you know and and when you think about you know the the high intensity and the the real ability to get what you do within in the inpatient setting but yeah like maybe if we could touch on you know a project that's looking more at that kind of transit that continuum of care you know that might highlight some of the home community work that that's happening as well i think that would be an interesting way to go absolutely Uh, i'll talk about two projects which go across the spectrum one is diagnostics um how do you diagnose what are your impairments or your functional limitations are and what is your prediction where are you going to end up and then where are you going to be in the future when do you need to come in and see your therapist or your physician? These are tough questions with insurance limitations, right? You have to understand science, again, is very unique depending on where you do it. Because if you're in Japan, you can be in the inpatient care for a year. While if you're in the United States, you got about 18 days <laughs> before you have to be discharged. And in, in Europe, depending on the country you are, the care model is very different. And the intensity of the care, if you're at Shirley Ryan, is very different than if you're in X hospital. In, in a rural part of the country, it's completely different. It's a lot of bed mobility, very limited intensity and dose. And so your outcomes are all unfortunately determined by these extraneous variables, your insurance payer and which country you are in um, can determine what you get. Just because you're in a facility doesn't mean you're gonna get any better. It's all about what they're giving you at that time. Um, so one of the things which is now cutting edge, which many of you might already have is variable sensors, right? Um, we all love it. We love our Apple watches, our Fitbits, uh, but you have to completely understand those are just fun commercial products. They completely underpredict and overpredict functional outcomes or impairments in an impaired population um, because all the algorithms are trained on healthy people. So if you really put a, an Apple watch, you can, sh- you can just sit and shake your hand, it'll count steps because it's meant to be a commercial product. But variable sensing is becoming a critical part. There are a lot of codes now, reimbursement codes, RTM and RPM codes, all based on um, during COVID, it especially kicked in quite a bit because of uh, tele-rehab. But we're working that we want to give patients a few sensors. There's two types of sensors, variables, Apple Watches, then there are stickables. You can stick it on people's bodies. So we're working on these stickable sensors with our collaborator, Professor John Rogers. You should talk to him. You'll get a big kick out of all the stuff he's doing. Um, and the idea is when somebody comes into our hospital, we can put it on and they just about, they do about a minute of activities and we can actually predict what their recovery trajectory is. So we split it into three models. It's called automation, illumination, and prediction. Automation is automating clinical outcome measures. It's very important because one of the big things where a therapist or a physician plans trajectory of care models is based on these clinical outcome measures, which is what is required for reimbursement. But it takes time and effort, dedicated equipment, and a lot of times 
therapists and clinicians are limited by how much care they can provide in an inpatient setting. You get an hour. So you got to do all the therapy. You can't be doing outcome measures. So they do it at admission, sometimes at midpoint, and sometimes at discharge, consistently not. So without having to do these things, these sensors can automate these clinical outcome measures, your walking score, your balance score, your upper limb function, your heart rate, your respiratory rate. It's all automated. And it's feeding into a dashboard where clinicians and therapists, everybody can see and the patients can see it themselves. Second is illumination. You're illuminating. If I'm walking faster on day two or three, is it because I'm using, I'm recovering or I'm using a pathological gait pattern? Is my spatial and temporal parameters better? My kinematics better? Or I'm actually just using abnormal gait patterns and just moving. Am I getting worse, but it looks like I'm getting faster, but I'm just trick, using trick moments, right? So we're trying to give you insight is my heart rate variability changing because my ectopic beats are there? Or why is it happening? So we're eliminating or providing access to information, which normally you need dedicated equipment. The third is, third is prediction. So it's two types of prediction. I'll tell you what we're working on is what type of fall risk are you at discharge? Are you going to a skilled nursing facility or are you going to go home? Are you a high, are you going to be a community ambulator or limited community ambulator or a household ambulator? All this we want to predict on day one and using variable sensors and machine learning. And then we're hoping to predict how you look at one month, three months, six months, or 12 months. And all, as you know, in machine learning and all that more data, the better. And a lot of the model is right now very uh, uh, personalized to our hospital because we've labeled the data in our patients from admission to discharge to one year post. So all the training models are only on our team, but hopefully once we get it as a product, it is you stick about a max of three sensors and you just have to do a minute or two minutes called snapshot activities, which means all they have to do is walk around in their room or do certain functional tasks with the upper limb will be able to predict what's gonna happen and can automate the clinical scores. You don't even have to perform a six minute walk test but within one minute, we can give you what your six-minute walk test score will be, your birth balance score, all doing just one activity. You don't even have to do the other activities. And we can look at other metrics and look at your prediction. So that's what we're working on, and it's called AIP or Automation Elimination Prediction. Um, that's in monitor, which is critical because now when you're at home, if the fall risk profile goes up, it, we can set up these kind of warning signs within the dashboard that it'll ping the physician or the therapist say X patient is actually becoming a higher fall risk or their gait speed's going down or they're barely walking or their fall risk is high because we have fall detection algorithms. So all this can be done so that we can bring them in at the right time. Instead of a lot of times they come in at the wrong time, you have limited number of sessions you can use in uh, outpatient, which is limited by Medicare. So you want to maximize these outputs. That's one. So that's Inpatient to home and community. This is this is great stuff. Um, it, in some ways, yeah, I, this think, is, I think. Sorry to cut you off, David. I think you know how we always have the magic wand question at the end of how <laughs> design. I think you already answered it, and well, just right there. <laughs> that would be my <laughs> magic those. wand. If you gave me the magic wand, I'd be right there. Because in some ways, you know, all the all that we talk about on our show is is the potential for technology to kind of level the playing field and to maybe break down some of those barriers that are somewhat defined on outcomes based on zip code and opportunity for the best, you know, situation for rehab um, that you, you um, described so well. Um, the, that last scenario that you mentioned with predicting the real world mobility and is that, is that happening now outside of 
the lab, are you are you grabbing that data now? Um, pa patients that have gone into the home to know whether or not you're intercepting a fall? Or where, where are you at with that? Yeah, so the fall detection, we already have that. We finished the study, I mean, two years ago. We have a fall detection app. It's interesting that even though it's a free app available, I haven't seen much downloads <laughs> or anything. So again, I'm, a, I'm an quasi-academic clinician researcher, right? But once I create an app, it's up to some commercial vendor to take it up and use it. It's free. It's not even, we're not even trying to make money out of it. Uh, but the question came to me is like, okay, I can detect falls. What am I doing? I mean, we'll tell you whether you slipped, you tripped, or you fainted. Uh, what's your GPS location? What the weather at that time is? Everything. So we can almost identify specifically what's happening. But now we're coming to a stage where we're like, okay, uh, we can detect falls. What are we going to do about it? Uh, it might be too late a lot of times because the current therapeutic strategy is to work on your reaction time, strengthen your core muscles, um, there's these reaction treadmills where they quickly turn on the treadmill forward or backwards so you can kind of train when you're slipping or tripping to react. Um, they do all these uh, fall mitigation strategies, right? How do you tuck and roll if you fall and all that? There's one group of, whole group of, that's a traditionalist, I would say. What, because we're so uh, technology driven, we kind of were like, oh, we gotta do something. So weirdly, we were watching this Dutch company create these bike helmets uh, which when they tip over the, the bike, you would, this airbag would come out of their heads and actually cover them from head injuries. Um, we ended up contacting them. They they do make airbag shorts. So we've been working with them for about three years now, where they're women's and men's shorts, you can wear it under, they look really good because, you know, as unlike us, the Dutch are very skinny. They have these skinny jeans and you can wear those under their skinny jeans. Um, and, We've been using machine learning algorithms to train it in stroke specifically. So when you fall, the airbag will deploy. It's like you'll hear a small, like, like a firecracker go out and then the airbag deploys and it prevents your neck of femur from cracking basically and getting your butt bruised. So, I mean, we can't prevent the head injury yet, but we can at least take away that because as you know, if you break your hips, your mortality rate just goes up like that and stroke actually fall way more than elderly who are considered the high fall risk, but actually stroke patients fall that's, multiple times higher than an elderly population. That's an important- And the combination is yeah. the worst things. You have a stroke and you're elderly, frail elderly, then it's like a, a nightmare situation almost. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. That is a big fact that it's not that known. So thank you for bringing that up. So we're working on that airbag technology, which is cool. It's an app. Immediately, I'll get a text, airbag deployed, X person, this GPS location, we can call them and say, hey, do you fall? Everything okay? Uh, because most people live alone. Um, because what we're using a lot of data collection right now in the communities, we don't want an airbag to deploy when you bend on tie shoelace quickly. Or let's say you almost fall, but you catch yourself, or your dog came and jumped on you, then, then there's going to be this uh, rejection, right? Oh, God, this thing's keeping deploying all the time. So we're training the model so that it understands what is what are all non-fall-like events. So you got to train it to understand. I mean, machine learning and AI sounds cool, but it's a, it's pretty, in my personal opinion, pretty dumb. You got to feed it a lot of information for it to understand what is what. So that's a, a project which is going on as the monitoring. As you probably now know, monitoring is also moved into two areas. The other is computer vision, which is using camera systems uh, it's called post-estimation. 
where instead of sensors, you can use just video cameras, smartphone cameras to do kinematic movement parameter monitoring, fall detection. Um, that's all a big, uh, what we call hot field now in, in sports biomechanics, at least it's quite a bit used. It's easier than that because behaviors are very consistent. An athlete does a sudden cut or a move repeatedly. So you can easily track the joints and you can mark them and create computer vision software for that. Um, in obviously a stroke patient, every step or arm movement is different every third time. So it's much harder to train algorithms to do it, but that's computer vision. There's another collaborator of mine, uh, Dina Karabi at MIT. She uses radio frequency waves, which means no cameras, no sensors. It looks like a Comcast box. It emits radio frequency waves into your body, it bounces off, and it'll tell you whether you're falling or you're sleeping. Is it REM sleep, non-REM sleep? Uh, she can monitor. I mean, she's brilliant. So we've been working with her on that stuff, which is, again, a little more private, because if you put a camera in your house, yes, I don't think my mom would want that even though I'm saying, mom, but I'm keeping an eye on you. She's like, no, that's kind of creepy to put a camera in the house. But sensors maybe, but again, you got to charge them. You got to be in the body. If you're tech savvy, you do it. If you're not, well, these technologies are, you don't even have to touch them. And they're in a corner, there's no camera, nothing in it. It's just pretty frequency waves bouncing off your body and kind of tracking you and it can track multiple people at a time in a house. And it can go through walls. So you don't have to worry about just in one location. So uh, the field is quite a bit uh, moving in that direction and at stroke care. So uh, therapeutics wise, I mean, I can stop and you can ask me another question or I can talk about a therapeutic project which just comes from home to community. Yeah, yeah, let's dive into it. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, so there's, I'll talk about one neuromodulation idea and one variable robotics. Um, so robotics, the original version were all pretty bulky, right? They were big robots. They were meant because a lot of times when we're doing treadmill training with the patients or upper limb training, the therapist would manually move the patient. It was fatiguing their arm and they were getting basically occupational hazards of injury. And so they thought, well, we can put the robots, the big robots, they can move them. So the therapist can do it. But any kind of neural recovery, you have to understand that if you passively move somebody's legs, they don't learn anything. Once you take the robot off, the person's gone back to the original level. They have to volitionally contract. Um, and sometimes when you walk on a treadmill with a robot, it doesn't translate over ground. So now there's a whole new generation of soft robots or modular robots, which can only actuate a certain joint. They're lightweight. Uh, companies like Honda and Samsung have come on with these modular robots. Uh, we have collaborators at Harvard and uh, ETH Zurich who have soft robots, which are like your bicycle cables, little motors. So these are performance augmentation robots, which we can put it on and it runs off a smartphone app and you can send somebody home. So what we've used these technologies is in an inpatient setting. Why? Early stage when you're pretty impaired, it takes a while for somebody to start stepping. But a lot of times wait for them to get there, but then critical days are going by, you're capped by insurance. So you, sometimes you got to wait six, seven, eight days before they can actually push them hard to get that intensity and dosage, but seven days are gone. But when an early mobility can be initiated with a robot because the robot will give you that hip flexion you need or move your leg or your arm. So we start off with that. As they get better, now we can push the boundaries in outpatient therapy, which means currently a lot of the therapy is high intensity training, right? So we can push that gait training because a lot of times patients get fatigued. 
or the kinematics look really bad. In order to keep up the speed, they'll throw their leg forward and slam their leg instead of doing a proper movement pattern because somebody will say, I don't care as long as they walk, they can walk really badly. But if you keep using bad movement patterns over time, you're going to damage those knees and the ankles and the hip bone because you're using pathological movement patterns and that musculoskeletal tissue is all getting damaged and you get these floppy limbs. If you notice in some people, the whole legs damaged. So we want them to use normal patterns as much. So in fact, therapy is emerging where historically it was all very impairment based where they'll focus on proper motion. Then came the functional task specific training. They only focus on the function. Now we're kind of merging that. Hey, we want you to walk fast, but we want you to use as much as normative movement patterns so that long-term we don't want damage. But these robots can help you with that without doing all the work. They'll give you that additional extra. Hey, my hips moving out. Okay, I'm going to pull it back in. Or I'm kind of fatiguing now. Let me give you the gentle push till you catch up. And then the last is because of the lightweight, easy to wear, run off a smartphone, we have started sending them home because the continuum of care, right? A lot of times these patients from inpatient, they'll go up, 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 up. outpatient, they'll keep going. Then if you see them three months, they're bare, boom bear down. And then you see them a year later, nothing, because life outside a hospital is complex. Families have to move on to their everyday jobs. Now this person's probably lost their job or not able to work. It's a very complex psychosocial situation. Finances take a hit. You can't expect the same, unless you have a lot of money and you have ability to bring therapists and exercise physiologists home and trainers home and do this 24-7. People have to go on with life. As much as you're motivated, it's hard with a stroke to do that. But when you have an affordable cost technology like this to go home, yes, you can go to the gym and work out, but how many people with a stroke can get themselves in a car and go to a gym and work out? But a variable technology like this can get you walking. It can go in assistance mode when you're weak. As you get stronger, you can turn on an assistance mode. So it actually is a strengthening device, but you're also doing functional activities. So we worked with Honda on their home device. Unfortunately, it was during COVID. But it was brilliant. We just saw that people enjoyed doing a lot of activities with the robot. They would strap it on and they would go home and walking around. Uh, as So it can act as this hybrid device. It helps you with personal mobility, but it's also an exerciser because therapy and exercise are kind of similar in a way, just that therapy is a little more um, evidence-driven based on the specific impairments of the patient, while exercise is more on okay, I got to increase range of motion or bulk up my muscle or improve endurance. It's a little, so that's one thing. The other is an Israeli company called BrainCube in working with them. It's a, uh, it's kind of a genetic magnetic stimulation device which you put on your head and you do therapy. This is a device which again goes from inpatient all the way to home. We send it home. We teach the caregivers how to use it. Uh, they got an iPad which tells them what the exercises are and then they put the neuromodulation device. So, it all comes down to the question that stroke is such a complex issue that depending on the lesion location, the lesion size, the laterality of the lesion, and how fast they got to an acute care hospital, your recovery trajectory, your height, weight, BMI, what the other core morbidities were, were you obese, not when you had it, the trajectory is very different. So it's a combination of, did you get the, the medication immediately? Uh, what kind of inpatient setting were you? Uh, so can I modulate the brain using neuromodulation or a new drug? Can I improve my strength and endurance using a robot, high intensity gait training? Can I improve my upper limb function using certain things? Can I use a sensor to track me? Do I need an airbag? It's a package of stuff 
which doesn't have a one-size-fits-all mechanism. There is no item response theory where I can go type in and say, hey, this is my height, weight. I wish we can create that. Eventually, it'll happen, which is how the clinical trials will be split to patients based on the impairment level, the type of functional recovery, the sensor data from day one. All this will feed into some kind of a system which will tell us, hey, this person needs this in the acute care. In the, this is what they'll need in the outpatient setting, and this is what they'll need at home in community. Right now, it's kind of a more structured way of throwing the kitchen sink at them uh, because we're still figuring out some people have only half a brain left, but they go home jogging while others have a minor stroke and the impairments look nasty. So you have to understand that theoretically, the mild strokes all mostly recover. The severe strokes never mostly recover. And the moderate strokes is where all the R&D goes in because they have the trajectory to get the maximum output. Uh, but we're trying to do the best we can with all this stuff because now FES, functional electric stimulations, making a comeback. It's using machine learning and sensors to stimulate the right muscles at the right time to find the gait cycle. So a lot of it's coming back like fashion. I mean, I'm noticing the fanny packs and a lot of my friends and I'm like, what? This isn't fashion now? I thought it was gone 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but I mean, the only difference is now it's sideways instead of right around your waist, I guess. Similarly, all the science is kind of taking a spin back and we're kind of catching back with a lot of them. I, I threw away my fanny pack, unfortunately. <laughs> it's a big in thing now, it's, but it's sideways for men, I think. That's it, so the, the European look. Um, well, you brought us on quite a journey there, Arun. Um, you know, I just love, like you speak, I mean, the, the amount of passion and, and obviously your expertise and what you're able to bring, but, you know, the way that you've described, you know, the, the lack of support, the financial burden, you know, the disconjointed kind of pathway once a, once a patient leaves the hospital for, for a stroke, um, you know, you could tell you've been, been in this and, you know, you're speaking our language. And I think for all of our listeners, this is going to be such a, a a show that kind of provides some optimism, right? Um, because oftentimes, you know, a lot of people aren't fortunate enough to go to Shirley Ryan Ability Lab and, and take advantage of this. Um, but, you know, I, I think what you've talked through and the innovation and the clinical trials that you're supporting, you know, will one day, you know, become accessible for, for patients around the globe. Um, but, you know, as we do have some listeners, you know, internationally, you know, UK, Europe, I, I know you, you work, like, let's, let's kind of highlight, you know, exactly how folks become involved within uh, Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, right? Um, you know, what's the inpatient process or the intake process like? And maybe just touch on as well for that international audience, some of the work you do there. Yeah, so we have a great organization within us called the Global Patient Services. These guys are brilliant. Uh, they have, I think, a dozen uh, interpreters, and they we take people. I don't know. I'm gonna make. I'm gonna say this number wrong, but I've saw, seen it somewhere. It either is 55 or 121. I'm making a mistake somewhere. But yeah, a ton of countries. In fact, um, I've gone, and many of our scientists and physicians have gone, given talks all around the world to help people with their practice. We take a lot of these patients through global patient services. Um, and we can handle it. Uh, is priority is for us is our uh, local patients first, the greater Chicago land, and then global patient services handles other states. Um, we also handle people all around the world. 
Uh, we have a great academy which will upload care models where others can, it's not that expensive to join these academy courses and view them and learn from our clinicians and researchers. Um, we do a lot of global, uh, international and local tours for people. Uh, we have these um, uh, internships, we provide therapists. I mean, I just had a therapist from Germany doing his internship in my team, learning the care models, uh, what we use and the research interventions to go replicate in Germany. Uh, so we allow clinicians and researchers to have sabbaticals in our group um, and learn. Uh, it takes a lot of resource and time and energy, but we want to share our uh, knowledge with the rest of the country and the world. End of the day, look, we're here because we care about our patients. And it's a great way to live. Uh, it's a lovely job. I'm excited every day because you get to box with the best technology in the world. And we get a lot of times first dips on it. Who can say that? And that's so much fun. And, it, and it's interesting. Um, but end of the day, it's the we do it for our patients because uh, it's a very thankful job because you you can't uh, really put it into words how it can change somebody's life because a lot of these these uh, in, uh, conditions completely flip somebody's life. They had normal lives, going about normal things, and these things just completely flip their lives head over heels. And it's a miserable, I mean, I just, my family just has a respiratory infection and a cold. That flips our lives for a few days. I mean, it's just cough and cold and fever. I mean, I know a certain dose of Tylenol or Motrin or something is going to do it, but it just feels miserable. Imagine having a stroke where now a lot of times your speech is gone, your ability to swallow is gone, your upper limb function is gone, your movement's gone, sensations messed up, your cognitive functions messed up. It's a big burden. And same with all the other things, spinal cord injury, TBI, Parkinson's, MS. So you, you have to do more. And I think the organization is, is successful because they truly care about what they're doing. Um, it looks fancy, but more than half, I think half of our population is Medicare or no insurance. It's only the other half are private insurance. Yes, we're able to balance it out because we take private insurance and Medicare, but it's not like from outside, oh, it looks like a five-star facility. It's only for people with money. No, it's anybody and everybody. 90% of our research patients are patients from uh, lower income communities who can't access the therapist and the outside care and all that. And so it's um, that's the important part of this. Uh, and that's why research is important. But look, we can't blame anybody in a way, right? A lot of Medicare money has been misused over years, decades. So the government's cutting it. Somebody misused, significant. There was so much misuse, so the government cut it. Now we can't blame the government that way. Instead of pointing a finger at somebody, we have to get the evidence. Research will do that. Instead of forming clicks, which sometimes rehab can happen and say, oh, mine is better than yours and this and that, they fight in fighting. It's better to say, well, I have to work together to create the evidence. More therapy absolutely is needed by a, a really bad uh, typo, speech and PT got lumped into Medicare reimbursement while OT got its own number of sessions. They haven't been able to solve that problem yet to get PT its own number of sessions. So that's what is needed. Home and community care means more therapy. The more therapy has to be provided. 
technology has to be assistive and adaptive technology has to be given. More speech therapies required, more lower limb, upper limb therapies required, home and community technology. The problem with technology is, right, a lot of times the startups are fundraising, they gain millions of dollars, but when you do R&D and clinical trials, the, the burn rate's very high. So they burn through the cash. So once they create a product, they have to add that R&D cost, the marketing cost, the sales cost, everything. Now you have a ridiculously expensive technology. Now, since you have a ridiculously expensive technology, you're not able to sell that many, which means you're going to this vicious cycle of, oh, I'll fundraise more. Now it has to become more expensive because you're burning more money. So I think it requires almost uh, a group effort of multiple big players understanding this um, and uh, investing in these technologies and providing patients. It's not a one size fits all. I don't think in the past, right? People would think, oh, if I give an AFO, I'm compensating, it's bad for recovery. But a lot of times without an AFO, a lot of our stroke patients can't even take that first few steps. They're so unstable and high forward. So there is a place for orthotics. There's a place for FES. There's a place for gait training. Everything is a place. You just have to know who needs what dosage of that, right? Not everybody needs a solid AFO. Somebody can use an articulating AFO. Somebody doesn't even need an AFO. We need to teach our therapists, when do you wean them off the AFO? When do you keep them on it? Who needs eight sessions of therapy? Who needs 18? Who needs 80 sessions? That understanding of research is required. Yeah, and that's in like that kind of goes back to that the um, what was it, the AE, AEP right like that automated process like being able to kind of have that understanding right at the the front door as soon as they go like kind of really getting a good snapshot of what that patient's going to need long term. Um, but listen, I again we we tend to end each episode here with the with the magic wand question and what that question is um arun is you know how would you redesign the stroke care pathway if we were to place a magic wand in your in your hand um i you've hit on so much here tonight <laughs> around it like where you know you, you've really spoke to to so much of the fragmentation that's happening within stroke care today um and highlighted some amazing technology that you guys are working on. But, you know, if you could kind of sum it up into, you know, a, a kind of short, you know, synopsis here, you know, what, what, what would, what does that ideal care pathway look like in your eyes? I think the ideal care pathway would be using technology to determine who the, how long does a patient need therapy in an inpatient setting and outpatient in a home setting? Most of the therapists and the clinicians are passionate about their patients and they're not going to misuse funds. And a lot of times insurance companies thinking by cutting this now, they save money, but actually they're going to bring these people back into inpatient and they end up burning more money through medications and other complications, secondary complications. If they just upfront paid for more therapy, good therapy, then all these long-term secondary complications will not happen if they provided home resources, caregiver resources, this long, all one fall would cost you hundreds and thousands of dollars, which let's say earlier stage, extra therapy to strengthen them or fall training or balance training. And let's say a thousand dollar airbag could have easily prevented $250,000 in surgery and medical health complications. 20 sessions, 30 sessions of inpatient care would get somebody to move from 
some sitting in a wheelchair to be an ambulator, which means they feel better about themselves. They have to work with social services to get people jobs, to encourage them recreationally and to get go about life, counseling, mental health issues, all this end of the day, the magic wand is more reimbursement. The longer the reimbursement, the better the care. That's what we need because all this R&D and science can only do so much magic. End of the day, simple therapy works more than anything else if they just were given more chance to do things. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're speaking the language and that's what it comes down to, right? And and what you're doing on the evidence generation side, you know, that, and that's, that's such a big key to this. Um, you know, we always bring it back to bring back stroke rehab to training like an athlete. Right. And it's almost like, you know, you're, you're taking a, a young up and coming athlete and saying, you know, you're only allowed to be in the gym for, you know, 30 minutes every, every, you know, three days a week or whatever it is, you know, where that's all they'd have access to. And, and I think what we're saying here, it's, you know, giving that giving stroke survivors, you know, the ability through reimbursement to really get as much access to rehab as they can, whether it's inpatient or at home, you know, through some of these advanced technologies. Yeah, I mean, at the Shelly Ryan Ability Lab, they truly believe more is better mm-hmm. in terms of therapy. All this research is to give the appropriate therapy to the appropriate person. And yes, I always say this to our patients. Think you're training for the Olympics. If you're training mm-hmm. for the Olympics, how much would you do? You can't do this one hour of therapy and then go home and sit on a couch and watch TV and expect magic to happen. You got to imagine if you're training for the Olympics, you're going to do four hours in the morning, probably a two-hour recovery and another four hours, and then maybe another hour at night. I don't know. Eight to 10 hours. Do as much as you can. You have to beat the odds. Look, the world is such a complex place. Everybody's got their own ponds of self-pity to swim in. End of the day, the patients have to drive themselves. We're there to provide that helping hand, but they got to train like they're training for the Olympics and like for a permanent Olympics. There's nothing else. And you have to then provide them the resources so that as they do this intensive therapy, they can go about life, they can have a job, they can have some finance coming in, they can have some family support, social support, medication. You can't expect somebody to train that long and then then how are they gonna feed themselves? How are they gonna have a life? So the system's got to be set up around that. They can do that. Long-term, we're gonna save so much money. These insurance providers are gonna be so happy. They, They just got the whole thing reversed right now. They just don't, they see it the opposite way than they should be seeing. They will save money. They will be able to pay their investors. But mm-hmm. if they invest in the beginning to all this, a happy person, healthy person is going to be so much less a burden to the healthcare system than not. Yeah. And just what happening in diabetes, right? You know, prevention, prevention is going to save money. You know, and That's something same. I forgot to say. That's something we're working on is preventive neurology, prevent, like preventive cardiology. Hey, as your arm swing goes down or your gait starting to tweak, are you an early indication for stroke? Can we catch it before you get it? What are the symptoms? We're trying, that's a tough study to do. We're trying to figure that out. Who, because it's really hard, right? You, you follow a bunch of people, you don't want to pray they end up with a stroke, but who is going to end up with a stroke? Because you right. know, certain core morbidities, okay, you got certain things, family history, certain weight issues, or you got blood, high blood pressure, but can we track and see certain symptoms so we can catch these people? 
and put them in intensive care program. They have that for cardiology, but again, a lot of places don't use it. It's preventive cardiology. Once you hit a certain threshold, they say, okay, you got to go on a high intensity rehab protocol yeah. to prevent getting congestive cardiac failure or you needing a, a cabbage surgery in the future mm-hmm. or go on medications, right? The same way in neuro rehab, we have to do that. Yeah. Parkinson's, we've... they know as your arm swing goes down, they can say that you're an early onset for Parkinson's disease. Yeah, and we've used that comparison many times in the difference between cardiac rehab services and then when it comes down to the neurological population how we don't we don't look at it the same way and you know going back to the athlete example as well that you know it's it's um we could be stopping a lot of folks from dropping over that rehab cliff that you mentioned that happens when when services end so um, I, I feel like we could, we could, we could, there could be a part two, three, and four to this, but, and I, and we, that end to your magic wand talking about coming back to the rehab and, and, um, and reimbursement. Um, I think that um, you answered the magic wand question from, from the get-go. It was everything you talked about excites Mike and I and things that we've talked to. And it's great to see that you and your team are, are working towards that end to solve a lot of these big problems that are, that need to be solved. So thank you so much for your time, your expertise, um, and how, uh, we'll put, we'll put your contact information, Shirley Ryan's in the show notes. Um, anything else you wanted to, uh, leave us with that we might, might not have covered. Patients all across the world should look up clinicaltrials.gov. Clinicaltrials.gov has every clinical trial and stroke going on. And it'll say recruiting, then they can contact, and then should participate in research. Um, and they can do it. Uh, they're more than welcome to contact me. Sometimes it takes a while, a bit of time. I'll usually have somebody email or I'll email back immediately. Uh, if they qu- qualify for research in our hospital, there's 20 to 30 in my team, but there's probably 200 clinical trials going on in the hospital. And strokes predominantly the largest, as I said, um, they can participate in it. Uh, Then UIC has a ton of stroke research going. Uh, Northwestern Physical Therapy, it's called NUPTHMS. They have a ton of stroke trials going. In fact, my wife's a stroke researcher and she has a ton of stroke research going. So there's so much going on. I don't think people maximize this. You literally can get going from trial to trial, a lot of our patients can get years of therapy because a lot of these are therapeutic trials. Um, And uh, they can access technologies, companies, products, um, things like that. Uh, So it's also information, uh, right? What you guys do should be broadcast to a lot more people. It's critical people understand this, all the information. I saw the list of the 36, I think, was it 36 podcasts? Yeah, I mean, that's all brilliant stuff. People should be listening uh, like when they're driving or sitting in the morning coffee. I don't know what it is because knowledge is power, right? Mm-hmm. We waste so much time in other stuff online. I think maybe if they focused more on stuff like this, uh, it'll help them out much better. Um, and uh, it's it's hard uh, after a stroke to, to do things, but look, we got to help ourselves and move on about life. Uh, and if there is a trial which they can participate, I'm happy to take them. If, look, I don't, I don't want to say that I'll let everybody demo stuff, stuff, but a lot of times people will show up on our in my space. Oh, I traveled across the world. I need to see this. And I'm like, okay. 
if you came all the way, I'm going to let you see it. But, uh, but it's also a risky thing to say everybody's open to come in because I don't have the right to let everybody come in. But especially yeah, we, won't, we won't get you into any trouble there. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. Um, but yeah, you should look up the Shelter Rainability Lab webpage. Uh, mm-hmm. There's global patient services if they want to come for clinical care. The clinical care will also give them a, a vision into the research. So there's three ways you can go. They'll package into three ways. They'll get you a full eval. They'll get you the, the, the current clinical practice, whether it's inpatient, outpatient, or home. And then they will see if you qualify for research studies, which all is free of cost. Then sometimes there's something called beyond therapy package, which means they can create a package of interventions, which is usually not covered by insurance, unfortunately, but it's a fee for you service that, hey, you want to try this and that. They'll package it. Um, again, all driven through global patient services, and they'll handle it end to end. And that's why sometimes you can try things which are outside the box and things like that. Well, amazing stuff. You know, the, thank you again for all these this insight. Um, you know, I, there is so much happening. You know, within this space, especially at Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, that you know, there's. We'll we'll do our best to kind of point folks to to the research, and you know we we'd love to have you back on to to chat some more. Um, but yeah, I can talk forever. Time. That's my problem. Yeah, I know. I and know. there's so much to say. So much. There is so much. It's like it's bottled up, and finally somebody give me a mic, and we're like, oh, <laughs> I Listen, love your I love your yes. excitement for the topic because, uh, yeah. like like you said, you go to work every day like you're ready to open a new box and a present and and you're putting that energy into serving patients well so thank you so much yeah in fact sometimes the amazon box comes in and i'm like okay what's this inside this it's, I'm, i mean i'm just saying the stuff that sometimes comes from around the world it's just exciting beyond the level. well there i couldn't be more excited for a man like yourself to be leading this charge it's uh it's a it was really really optimistic to, to see this and and hear you know your your work and listen to you again the the level of passion that kind of oozes out for for the work you do is just you know remarkable so you know thank you i think for all of our listeners they're going to send a big thank you as well um and hopefully you know as as the world evolves here and we yeah you guys are welcome we'll to have more yeah you know yeah, they'll, yeah. They'll come be... over and we'll give you a tour hey show you some it. of the stuff you can try it out we we uh, haven't we, we haven't taken the podcast on the on the road in a while, so we might be taking you up on that. Oh, absolutely! You're welcome to come here, and we'll give you a nice tour of the facility and show you some of the the technologies we have. Hey, I greatly appreciate this opportunity. Uh, Thank you. This platform is great to talk about things. All right, Aaron. Well, we'll let you run. Thank you. You have a busy evening ahead of yourself. So thank you again for your time. Take care. Thank, thank you, you gentlemen. So thank you so much. Take care. Bye bye.